2: What's up, guys? Welcome to another Rule of Two, where Mark is making interesting hand gestures. And today we have a a very special guest once again, Bill Kimberlin, who is the Industrial Light and Magic visual effects editor. He's done a lot of uh, some of your favorite films, including mine. Return of the Jedi, Star Trek 3, Back to the Future, all of them, all three of those. Cocoon, The Mask, Schindler's Schindler's List, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Jumanji, Gangs of New York, Saving Private Ryan, Sleepy Hollow, The Abyss... And many more. He collaborated a lot with George Lucas at Industrial Light and Magic at ILM. And uh, today we're going to be talking about his book. We're going to be talking about his experiences. You can find his book in the link below on Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. It's available in all formats. How's it going, Bill?
1: It's going great. And uh, you can also walk into any bookstore and say, uh, can you order me this book? And they can <laughs> order the book, you know, Barnes and Noble, wherever you want to go, your local bookstore. Um, but a lot of people go to Amazon, and uh that's fine. And uh,
0: that and um sense. what's up, everybody? Mark here, you know. Um, and uh bring up the bring up the book one more time. So this this book actually has a really interesting cover because this scene which is the final battle uh, over Endor in the Death Star, was the scene that they brought you in to ILM to produce, right? Because George said, I want the craziest space battle ever made. And they brought you in as a film editor who had done your own film directed and, and I believe edited your own film called American Nitro. And your first focus was to do that crazy scene with... Tons of layers and spaceships, and and uh, that was your first challenge at ILM, correct?
1: So that photo that's on the front of my book is SB19. SB19 was the 19th shot in the Jedi space battle, and it is the most complicated shot that was ever done in the old photo optical process, where you had to uh, Put together the spaceships, uh, the backgrounds, the star field, the planet, the whole magilla, and I worked on that for I don't know about a month. And we had these this uh, division movieolas. So there were big old sort of thrashing machine sounding um, movie editing machines, and we were able to make black and white tests of all the ships. And I would compile them, do pre-composites, stack them all together, uh, run them in different configurations, sometimes turn a, a, a ship that was intended for another shot, put it in this shot or turn one upside down, whatever would work. And when I finally got it to a, a point where I thought, okay, I think this works. I showed it to my supervisor, Ken Ralston, who was in charge of all of the uh, shooting of the ships. And uh, of course, this was designed by George Lucas and Joe Johnston. They were the architects. I just had to put the thing together. So (laughs) at a given point, they called George and said, uh, you know, one of our uh, producers or production assistants called him. I'm in D building at ILM, which I'll talk about. And he's next door, his a feature cutting room for revenge of the Jedi. I know everybody wants to call it a return, but it's going to be revenge for the rest of my days. Cause <laughs> I've got all the t-shirts and coffee cups and stuff oh, and cool. that's what they wanted to call it. And, uh, and it wasn't a test name either. So, um, so the story goes, some little kid wrote him a letter and says, you know, Jedi's don't seek revenge or something. So he changed the title, if you want to believe that's that. It. One. That's a well, good story. I is that chills when
0: you said that. Wow. That's, that's a true story, some kid. Uh, no, somebody-
1: that is the st- When we sat in the screening room and we were uh, running, uh, our projectors were set up to run shots over and over and over again. And at some point you have to say, okay, that's good enough. So we had three types of shots, temp, CBB and final. A CBB meant could be better, but we wouldn't be embarrassed to have it in the movie. And we send it to the director and we tell him, if there's time, we're gonna go back and make this perfect. If we totally run out of time, that's gonna be in your movie, whether it was George or Spielberg or anybody else. Well, but once in a while, especially my boss, Ken Rawlson, would say, you know, I got this letter from this little kid in Japan and he sees everything and he points out any error that we might make. So let's do this one more time for him, because, you know, I don't want to get another letter from him telling me what's wrong with this shot. So uh, getting back to George, he comes over. uh, He says, can you run the shot for him for me? I run the shot for him, this is SB 19. He says, great, turns around and walks out. That was the highest compliment you could get. That's what (laughs) George would say, great. He said it, I don't know how many times. And the fellow, I eventually wound up running visual effects editorial at ILM. But my boss at the time said, geez, I thought we were going to be working on that shot for two months. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, it just so happened it came together. uh, And so that's why I put it on the front of the book. And I could tell you stories uh, on how many lawyers I had to talk to to get the right to put that on the front of my book. Yeah, yeah. Um, When when Disney took over, all of a sudden they changed the rules and said, nothing can come from Star Wars. Nothing can come from the films. And I said, but you don't understand. That, that was a photo composite that was made. It does not come from the film. And it was made of, as a, a promotional tool by our still department. And so technically, it's not in the movie. And somehow, they relented, and I, I got to use it.
0: Wow. Um, let me ask one quick question in theory you can get, because I know theory is uh, uh, you know, dying to get some questions in. One thing that I'm dying to know because in everybody who's worked with George, I ask, what, what was it like? um, What are your like best memories or, or describe what working with George Lucas was like back in those days? Was he a tough boss? Was he a supportive boss? Like, you know, there's always, um, you know, there's coaches that are tough on their pitchers and then there's coaches that know, when to support the pitcher? What 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 kind of coach boss was George when you were working with him?
1: So um, when I started working with him, he was a very uh, uh, reticent man, <clears throat> and he was uh, shy around people that he didn't know well. Once he got to know you, then you could kibitz with him. Uh, and and he was like a big college kid. So he'd come to work. He's wearing jeans. He's wearing a flannel shirt. On the weekends, he would wear his uh, USC Film School uh, Letterman jacket. And uh, he, the thing about him was his ability to analyze and say, "That's good enough," or, you know, um, "We have to redo something." Or, it, you know, you sent it to me and I cut it in and it's not working with the sequence. So one time he comes, he's been away. We're on Jedi, He's been away for a couple of weeks. Well, we, we think we have shots done, but the shots are still hot on the sets because we want to tear all the sets down and remove the models and change the lighting uh, until we get an okay. So he finally comes in one morning to the screening room. And uh, the produ- producers are kind of wringing their hands and they're feeling like they're behind. And George says, you want decisions? Bring the lights down, you'll get decisions.
0: <laughs>
1: lights come down, we start projecting stuff, bing, bam, boom, in, out. You know, these are these are decisions that are flying around the room that, you know, m- millions of dollars are at stake here. Okay. So uh, he was... Uh, He was not a screamer. He was not anyone who was yelling at anybody. Uh, He would uh, say he liked something or he didn't like it. Uh, I never saw him raise his voice to anyone. Uh I, I, my book's full of stories of other directors who, you know, and it comes from the fact that they they are uh unsure they're unsure about uh whether something is good or not and and they and that shows that it's fear actually and uh you know i'm i'm, I'm sure george has his foibles one of my best friends uh when i was working at ilm he said um that he would walked out in the hallway saw george stuck out his hand and said Hi George, I'm Tim. I've been working for you for two years, and I've never met you. And he said George practically jumped backwards. He he felt like he was he was invading, you know, his space. But mm-hmm. everyone in Marin let the guy live his own life. Mm-hmm. And I've got a story about that. So I'm there the first week or so. We go to Daly's. then we go to the coffee shop across the parking lot. It was called Foodles. And we'd get a cup of coffee or a donut and then go back and start, you know, editing whatever we were doing. So I'm in there and George walks in, jeans, flannel shirt, grabs a pot of coffee, pours it into a styrofoam cup, pays for it and walks out the door. OK, this is my first week or so. And I was like, doesn't this guy have somebody to go get him a cup of coffee? I've never done <laughs> anything like this and but that was not the thing what the thing i later learned what the thing was he wanted to live as best he could a normal life mm. and that means and and he was able to do that in marin people knew who he was but they would pretty much leave him alone if a kid came up to him he'd sign an autograph or something but the adults sort of knew to uh, let this guy have his own space and um that's a precious commodity when you reach his uh, level. Wow.
2: I can't imagine that. That's, I feel like I would just, yeah, I would probably be too intimidated to go up to him. I would just be like, just, you know, watch from afar kind of thing. Um, Do you want to go over this? You were telling us backstage a little bit before we went live about this photo and this, this
1: day, do you want to talk about this a little bit? Okay. So this is the, First, let me explain that Lucasfilm, Skywalker Ranch, Industrial Light and Magic, all at that time were just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And we had, we couldn't be at Skywalker Ranch because we were too dirty. We had carpenters, we blew things up, we created smoke and fires and you know, if you wanted to crash a store destroyer somewhere out in the parking lot, we could get away with that because we were in the industrial section of San Rafael. <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, if you looked on a real estate map, it would list our area as light industrial. Well, mm-hmm. George came along. He's good with words. He had the word magic. And thus you have. That's <laughs> what that's
0: <clears throat> well, wow. Well, can you see that one? one? That. So, so, so your name, Industrial Light and Magic, came when you look at a survey, like at a, like at a real, real estate surveillance map.
1: Yeah, you'll of find that area. That's what it'll say. It'll say light industrial. That that's what it's zoned for. And when when ILM used to be in Los Angeles, that's what it was zoned for: light industrial. And so that meant that there you could uh, have an auto garage uh, you could work on your car you could have carpentry or an upholstery or you could blow up spaceships It's <laughs> pretty rad dude and that awesome. at, at the beautiful Skywalker ranch with the okay. lakes and the and the library made out of the finest uh, redwood and the uh, the tech building with with a uh, a scoring stage large enough to hold a symphony orchestra, with underground parking for everybody, with a rec room with a with a ham where you could buy hamburgers and t-shirts, and you could and wow. there was a racquetball court and a and a very large swimming pool. That was I used to go there to lunch all the time, invite friends, but. Like a country was club. Yeah, it was like a, a, a private country club. It was it was but it was isolated. You know, if you tried to go out for lunch somewhere else, by the time you got to the restaurant, your lunch time was almost up. Yeah. So in, in certain ways it wasn't uh practical. And they asked Mel Brooks, who came out there one time, and he said later, it's very nice, but I'm never going past San Rafael again. And you know, San is about 30 miles from it. Oh man! So, uh, did I answer your question?
2: Oh uh, yeah, we were just talking about this photo, basically. Uh, yeah.
1: Okay, so this is the D building screening room. <clears throat> this is the. Uh, let me get a glass of water here. This is where we looked at all of the dailies uh, <laughs> from uh, Jedi. And uh, we had specialized projectors where we could run shots uh, forward, backward, almost stop them. And the supervisors like Dennis Murin, who's in the very uh, front uh, right side of the frame and George, and I'm sitting directly behind George there and there's various other camera people. You can see the storyboards up on the walls. Uh, George had a pointer and he would point out things that needed to be changed. And uh, I remember it was his birthday, the week we the week I started there. And uh, one day we were watching the dailies from the space from the uh, bike chase. And this were these were backgrounds shot in the Redwoods in this division with a steady cam up in uh, Humboldt County somewhere. And we're running them, you know, and running them and running them. And all of a sudden, two Ewoks run out and they're holding a banner. And it says, happy birthday, George. And everybody has a big laugh. And George keeps saying, "Uh, run that in dailies for Marsha tonight at the house. Because he had a screening room at the house. He wanted her to see that because it was kind of funny.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Let me ask you a question about the... uh because uh, I think it relates to the stuff that you were working on. So, in that picture, um, if we can bring it back up, Theory, real quick. Um, in the background, like you mentioned, there's a ton of storyboards. And um, when you think about filmmakers like, for example, Stanley Kubrick, who I used to think was a big storyboarder, it turns out he never storyboarded anything, he just kind of found the shot as he was making the movie. Um, did you guys pretty much know exactly what every shot would look like? I mean, how how close to the final product was the storyboarding process?
1: Well, in special effects, which were the, the shots that were being worked on here, um, you you pretty much needed to stick with the Plan for the shots. Now, uh, when George got the temps and started cutting them into his live action, he would sometimes figure, okay, I don't need that shot. Well, okay, there. You would just save $200,000 on on his movie. So that's why you have these. These are uh, like plans. George would sit down with a concept artist and they would paint some um pretty sophisticated paintings to get across the ideas but then he would work with someone like joe johnston who was his art director and storyboard artist and, and there were a team of people and they would break down all these shots all these sequences had to be broken down into specific shots that showed the angle what was in the shot there would be a list if you looked at the bottom of the storyboards there would be a list x-wing y-wing you know uh falcon uh planet what you know as well as a drawing and sometimes like a cartoon uh strip there would be a little arrow showing okay the the camera's going to pan this way or whatever so that's the plan sometimes the plan gets thrown out but myself i would receive all these storyboards and then when george got an idea needed a new shot he would send me a new storyboard and uh, i would get the results from the camera guys who went out and started shooting these new shots Um, so it's a it's like an architectural drawing but in almost a shorthand Uh, it's a sketch I've got a bunch of them. and I put a few in my book just to show people, okay, this, this is concept art. This is, this is planning out the shot. This is what it looked like.
2: Are there any shots? I mean, obviously, uh, digital, uh, editing and VFX have come such a long way since, especially even the eighties. Um, was there any sort of a scene that George wanted to do that he couldn't do back then? because i've read in interviews that he couldn't you know make the the originals as maybe flashy as the prequels because the technology wasn't around but did you know of anything that he wanted to do that just had to be taken out of the script or taken out of the movie because it just couldn't be done at the time
1: well famously there were shots in the original star wars that the studio would not let him do for cost reasons and They control everything. And uh, I've said this before. Um, I was in on the uh, restoration of the three Star Wars films. Okay. This is how it happened. We're sitting in C Theater, which is the building next to my building uh, at ILM. And uh, this is a beautiful Art Deco Theater that George and his wife designed because it it also had a bunch of editing rooms there. And if you've ever been into a studio editing room, they're like a basement and they're horrible. And when he designed his, they have patios, they have beautiful furniture, thick carpets, wonderful. The theater was like that too, just soundproof, The the theater floated inside the building. It didn't touch anything because it was originally a sound mixing theater for, you know, Skywalker sound. Okay, so George brings his personal print of Star Wars down and he runs it for us. Now this, when I say his personal print, this is the one, one of the only prints ever off of the original negative. And he had a copy of it, brought it down, ran it for us and told us, of the changes that he wanted to make and uh the idea was that there were some shots like the famous java the hut shot right that was later later done in cg that just couldn't be done they, the technology was not there he, he did what the best he could and uh but when it came time to um cut into the original negative my friend tom christopher was the guy who did it he was the guy who george saw every friday no one saw george every friday tom did and he would update him and where we are with the restoration of star wars and so when they got all done tom has the negative laid out there And he's starting to cut the new shots in, the replacement shots. George hated some of the way the wipes were done. And when they reprinted them, there was a lot of dirt in them. All that needed to be redone. And uh, at one point, Tom says, you know, before we do this, we could just run off a dupe negative in IP. And you'd always have uh, the original version. And George said, basically, stop right there. You don't understand. This, what I'm doing now, this is the original version. This is what I want to do. And they would not let me do. And now I have the money to do it. Okay. Now. That's so (laughs)
2: badass.
1: (laughs) Some people are very unhappy with changes that were made. Yeah. But I'd just like to point out, I don't have a dog in fight but I'd just like to point out that every artist, novelist, painter, every kind of artist is constantly adding and making changes to their work. You know, Scott Fitzgerald is one I can think of off the top of my head. And I I liken it to this. Let's say you're some kind of big shot financier in the 1950s and you're at, in a penthouse in New York and you have a Picasso, a really nice one. And you have Picasso over to dinner cause he's still alive. And he looks at the painting. He says, you know, Bob, I always wanted to add a little green to that, but I never could for, afford it. Would you mind? What are you going to say to the guy? No, absolutely. No.
0: No. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's very interesting here. Uh, last, uh, last week, uh, we had the great Paul Hirsch on the show and uh, he was very generous with his time and we chatted quite a bit about the editing. And I asked him a question, I'll ask you as well. Um, famously, when the National Archive was archiving AFI's 100 Greatest Films, they, you know, uh, Star Wars was one of them and they asked George uh, for the negative of of the film or or a print of the film that had won the Academy Award, so that they can archive. And George yes. and George sent his uh, his restored version, and uh, you know there was some controversy at the time uh, with the AFI and the National Gallery saying, "No, no, no, we need you know we need the uh, the actual one." And uh, he said the same thing. You said, "No, no, this is the actual <laughs> one." Yeah. Uh, what What are your thoughts about that? Do you think he should have sent? the original based on their guidelines, or do you think he's completely in the right?
1: Well, you know, I talked to Tom about this once, and he said, you know, there are dupe negatives and things that exist, and if Disney decides they want to put one out, uh, they could do that. And uh, But I I can also understand... uh, I've made films, and um, I would... Liked to be able and go back and change a few things. In fact, I'm doing that now on one. But, you know, it's sort of a restoration, and uh, I can understand not being one. The studio stopping you. Um, the studio when they first saw American Graffiti, they said this is unreleasable, and Francis wow. Coppola stepped in, and he literally pulled out his checkbook. And said, "I'll buy it right now." Well, they backed off, and the rest is history. It was not unreleasable. It was that film turned out to cost seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and it made fifty million bucks. And that is probably the greatest uh, expense-to-return <laughs> ratio in movie history. <clears throat> I don't think anybody will ever beat that one uh and and it's still every year it makes you know (laughs) it adds to the 50. so uh what do i think about it um i uh i'm a kind of a historian guy and i appreciate i know what original sources are and uh i but i also know that uh if if the studio jumps in and they say okay we're changing the this Star Wars film, if they were to do that now, I think everybody would really legitimately be pissed off. But when the creator does it, I think you got to give them some leeway.
0: I agree
2: a
1: thousand percent. I agree percent. with
2: that. Yeah. Um, what did you think about them switching Anakin uh, from uh, putting in Hayden in there in the go from the ghosts? at the end you know
1: i'm not enough of a star wars geek to have an opinion on that i i have a ranch up in uh above san francisco i live in near san francisco yeah and a neighbor kid knocked on my door one day and uh geez he had a thousand questions he he found out that i worked on star wars and i you know you can't say to some kid you know to beat it, kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. Good, but... I can't answer all these questions. You know, it was a professional thing for all of us. Yeah. And um, you know, uh, there there was a uh, if if people came to uh, apply for jobs, and there were two nutso about being fans. You know, we would just pass because. Um, It, it, uh, you know, it was fine, but let's see your credentials first and see how you work here. And then we all, you know, have a soft spot in our heart for these movies, you know, because we knew we were working on something that that was so important. And who wanted to disappoint every little kid in the world because you didn't do your job right? I mean, you worked... We, we wanted to uh, do it for George himself because we liked him. And uh, we wanted to do it because we knew these were more than just movies. You, you had, uh, uh, you know, a whole eth- ethic here. Uh, yeah. uh, and, you know, I have said before, George Lucas made his fortune, his billions, the hard way selling movie tickets he never took any public money any tom dick and harry that's talented enough in silicon valley today can become a billionaire but they're doing it by taking public money he never did that and uh that's pretty hard to do i and you know with the exception of um a few very famous uh writers uh, the one I can think of as uh, Harry Potter lady. Uh, very few have done what he's done.
0: Yeah, yeah. Agreed. So, so so, to shift gears a little bit here, because you also worked on a trilogy that's probably, you know, one of my, Back to the Future is like my favorite movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's a perfect movie. I think it has that rare air of, okay, Back to the Future is a perfect movie. Um do you, very specifically, do you remember why they picked Orion, or like any kind of thinking? Did you hear the rumor, the murmurings of why they went DeLorean as the time machine and Back to the Future?
1: Well, let me say uh, that is one of the most perfect screenplays I think I ever read. I mean, to keep all these balls in the air, the time you know, uh, future, past, and, uh, you know, interlocking stories. And, and especially when then you go on, you've got, you know, another movie and more stories and you're going back into the cowboy days and yeah. doing all this stuff. That was, that's just brilliant. And um, the director had been set. Um, he was originally going to make Cocoon. But he was working on a picture called Romancing the Stone. And that awesome. had a terrible preview. It, the preview was so bad that Richard Zanuck and his wife, Lily, they fired him. So he, ne- he never did <laughs> Romancing the Stone. But then after he did um, the first um, Back to the Future, then he could do anything he wanted. Right. And uh, so the one story that I can tell about that is uh, we, in the, in the back to the future uh, where they go back into the, the old West and there's the steam engine and all that stuff. Mm. My boss, Ken was looking for a place where he could, uh, you know, we had built this, I don't know, one, six scale steam engine and uh we needed to run it off a trestle and have it crash and i said you know when i was a kid i used to go squirrel hunting up in this place north of san rafael town of novato and there was an old uh, quarry up there you know a rock quarry mm-hmm. and so ken rode up there with his wife on a horse one weekend and he looked at it. He said, you know, Bill said there's something up here and uh, he found this sort of Canyon thing. So Island went up there that built that trestle and they got the steam engine going and, you know, with the DeLorean being pushed and the DeLorean, you know, goes away by special effects magic and the steam engine goes down into the canyon and it and explodes now i've seen the general buster keaton and i've seen a real steam engine go down uh into a canyon and they don't explode surprisingly mm. but this is the movie business so we explode everything yeah. any chance we get nice
0: um so you never heard any little story about why they picked the DeLorean specifically, like because the DeLorean became this legendary icon after that movie, right? Like before that movie, it was it was known, but the car was only in production for three years. The creator of it was a uh, you know arrested by the FBI for and you know later later right. shown as it um,
1: DeLorean. He was John- one of the hottest uh, automotive geniuses to yeah. come. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. You'd have to ask the screenwriters. I mean, that was baked in by the time, the the screen uh, play by got. By the time to it me.
0: got to you, by the time it got to you, yeah. what 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 was Macus like to work with? Uh,
1: I worked with him on Roger Rabbit, and I remember we're uh, sitting down at the and we were showing him something, some tests we did, or something, and uh, I said, you know, what I hope to see is uh you know that shot in the old cartoons where you've got this guy running or you're on a train and and, and the same telephone pole is going by again and again and again <laughs> and he said uh oh we're gonna do all that you know he was he was like a big kid he was very enthusiastic and he was open to hearing you know what some small guy like me had to say And that was one of the most fun movies to work on because uh, it was so breakthrough. No one had ever done anything like this. I mean, there are uh, examples with lockdown cameras and with a, a dance routine and singing where animated characters were synced to live action characters. But here they weren't sure that this could be done. Spielberg had put up some money and he said, I I want you guys to do a test to prove that they can animate to this. And so my boss, Ken, said, Okay, I'm going to create a test that's so damn hard. We'll just see if those animators can solve it. So we got the car, the the famous car, or we did a mock up of it uh, out on one of the stages. And we had a swinging light. And we had the car headlights that a character is gonna walk through. We had Jessica. I mean, you know, we were, we had just stand-ins for this and then we would shoot it without. And we put all that uh, together and made reductions and sent it to the animators. And they drew at first like a pencil test uh and before you go into all the color animation because they were doing you know these this gorgeous disney level classing animation painting cells hand painting so you can't do that until you've locked it down so so they did a whole bunch of pencil tests of all the movements and stuff and we composited over the background looked like it was going to work They sent that out uh, for real now. So we took an eight by 10 pegged animation cell of every scene in the live action. Mm -hmm. And then that's how the movie was eventually done. Every single scene, we had a, a, you know, eight by 10 animation cell and they drew to that over a background that was a still of the live action. And when you composite that all together. So when we put that test together, we sent it down to Spielberg and he just went nuts. He says, okay, we're we're going ahead with this. You know, this is a movie about an animated character that no one's ever heard of. You know, the, the screenwriter. And it cost $50 million to make it. And we screened it in uh, Pasadena. And uh, the first thing that happened is a bunch of young people saw the opening Roger Rabbit cartoon, which is brilliant in my opinion. (laughs) They got up and left. They didn't want to see a cartoon. They thought it was going to be a cartoon movie. And then we ran it again for an older group. And one guy stood up and said, I like the movie, but I'd never take my children to see it because <laughs> I thought Disney would keel over. The executives would be, you know, uh, comatose. But I'll say something for them. They never changed that uh, language for Baby Herman, which was, you know, slightly rough. But it yeah. was a yeah, with, the, with,
0: with the cigar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the cigar. And, and, so and I have so, a follow up. Yeah. I have a question but theory. I wanted to give you a chance to jump in here if you wanted to um, ask something. But I do want to ask something following up to go, the Roger go Rabbit
2: stuff. Go for it, Mark.
0: So one thing that, that that blows my mind, you had a front row seat to this transition between the traditional special effects methodology as it slowly evolved into what today is now full-blown CGI and a lot of people, a lot of film historians attribute that to a movie called The Abyss uh, by James Cameron with the liquid creature was made completely in CGI, you know, as, as the story is told. What, right. what was it like working at ILM and starting to see that slow transition between the traditional special effects evolving into the CGI?
1: Well, it, it was exciting and it was scary because it was eventually going to put a lot of people out of work. And uh, we had a guy there who was emptying waste baskets and doing other stuff by the name of John Knoll. Uh, <laughs> John Knoll and his brother invented Photoshop. Now that's wow. probably... The largest selling piece of software besides something from Microsoft right. that's ever oh, yeah. been done. And uh they came John, from ILM? John Knoll did it on his own at night. And when he got stuck, he would wow. call his brother. And uh we used to after John is a major creative person at ILM today. He's a major supervisor there. And uh, because of Photoshop, he's also a very wealthy man. <laughs> but we used to kid. John, John was so talented. He did that water creature. And uh, he, he would go home at night and st- bring stuff back in the next day and say, you know, well, I was fooling around. And he would show something that would just <laughs> knock your socks off. And we used to kid and we'd say, you know, John has an older, smarter brother and (laughs) and, and John calls him when he gets stuck on something. Well, John was instrumental in getting some of this stuff going. Also, George was pushing very hard. Hollywood, they don't want to spend any money. They don't want any R&D. They don't want this. They don't want that. George had to drag them kicking and screaming into electronic editing with the editroid they had to drag him into uh, the, the digital projection digital cameras he he hooked up with uh, sony because his company was not large enough to to you know build a digital motion picture camera uh, so the breakthroughs that this guy you know not we're, we haven't even got to Pixar yet you know, when the, the first time when John Lasseter brought over uh, a little video, he called me and said, you know, can we bring this over and show it? Because we finished it. and We scanned it out. Well, that was Luxo Jr. Well, Luxo Jr. I looked at the thing and I said, anybody who can get that much emotion out of a Luxo lamp is pretty damn talented. And uh I have no idea where he's going in the world, but straight up, I think. And of course, the whole Pixar thing came right out of ILM's uh, computer division and the scanning of negatives. To begin with, to to make some of these shots, like you're talking about in The Abyss, we would take the uh, film negative background, we would scan it into digital ones and zeros that you could put in a computer and then once you get it in the computer you can do any damn thing you want to it's like magic and then you scan it back out it still it goes back to film but you can cut it into your movie like today as i've mentioned it would be nothing to do the girl in the little red dress in schindler's list but uh was a big deal back then so all of this stuff to me, means that if you compare George Lucas with uh, someone who's gotten a lot more fame, uh, like Steve Jobs, I think in the end, George is going to be found to be the more important person because he changed all of filmmaking for all time. And, And there was pushback. When he tried to do the um the restorations all the executives were totally against doing that. they did not they said we're not in the restoration business and they tried to stop him they did everything they could but of course he owned the company and they could only right. go so far. <laughs> and then if you look at the money they made off those restorations they made 250 million dollars and that financed holy crap the new movies that they wanted to make Jesus you know, unbelievable!
2: Like, the prequels what yeah
1: they, what are they thinking sometimes those executives would come in and they would run some film they were gonna do like a, a go to a Star Wars convention or something and they'd bring this film and they run it for george for his approval and I remember I was sitting there one day and and George says you know he didn't like it yeah. and they they talked him into it and I and he finally he just said all right go with it. I thought to myself, you know, there's a lot of things I may have some disagreements with George on, but if he, if it's a film subject and he's telling you it's not working, you better listen. Yeah.
0: It's amazing. You know, when you say this actually gets me a little bit angry okay? And oh, I'm already, I'm,
2: I'm angry, yeah, I'm angry hearing that, because I'm, I'm tired of this. And I articles. apologize for
0: saying this, but like, you're so right, you know, you have the guy who literally transcended and changed film in more different layers than any other filmmaker, you know, ever, right? It's like, you'd have to go all the way back to maybe Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock to even try Create a, a Comparable and I don't think you can And this man Was kind of discarded Off to the side In this new acquisition By Disney If you were to hear and I look The sources that I'm getting this from are his interview That he gave PBS uh, with that gentleman I forget his name right now but you know, You know from his own words He felt Discarded You know, after Disney bought this franchise off of him and no longer took his advice. And to your point, if George Lucas says X, Y, Z making, you better damn well listen to it. You know, even 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 the, the prequels changed cinema. Right. Like every single movie changed cinema like, you know. Yeah, anyway, it just gets me a little frustrated. I'm did, sorry.
2: To... Did he ever... I mean, I know he owned the company and all that, so he kind of pretty much had free reign, but was there anything that they told him to change about any of the originals?
1: That uh, No, they they wouldn't intervene in that. They, they would intervene in things that uh, they thought were business-oriented. Uh, they were really, really focused on getting the prequels made because that was gonna be money big money big big money I mean they took they took all the sponsors out to the ranch and they ran uh, 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 what are, in effects were little sales films about what they could expect this these new films to do and uh it was just a landslide of money coming in and they so they're all set on that, and that's why they said you know <laughs> Uh, We got to distract George from uh, doing these restorations because uh, that's not uh, where the business is. And I swear, there was one time after Howard the Duck when if he hadn't owned the company, uh, something similar to what happened to Steve Jobs would have probably happened. In other words... Uh, there would have been some kind of move to bump him up to chairman and let somebody else uh, wow. run the joint. And, uh, you know, that's just speculation on my part, but it's different when you own the company. Then you don't really have those problems. And, you know, the things that you've alluded to before about his unhappiness with some of the things that Disney has done, uh, he, you know he sold them his screenplays and they weren't interested in them and um, I think that, uh, that the idea of selling <laughs> to yeah. them, I think was a that was a brilliant idea in the sense of, of legacy because his kids aren't interested in it and if you want it to survive off into the future that's the way to have it. Stay alive, because it, imagine what would happen if just he, you know, he passed away and all this stuff sitting out of the ranch and in in boxes. And right. uh, what what's gonna? The, I don't the think sperm. that would have happened.
2: I don't know. I I just I just feel like that would never have. I feel like there would have been someone that would have been. I don't. know. I feel like Dave. He would have appointed Dave Filoni or something. You know, as head of. I I don't know. Maybe he would have come in there and handled everything from there on. And and Dave Filoni would. Uh, give it to someone when he got very old and was done with it. And, uh, I don't know. I just don't feel like it would have gone the way that it did. I almost, I read Bob Iger's um, book and I gotta say I wasn't really interested with, I wasn't in favor of the way that he kind of pitched the idea of buying Lucasfilm from George. I mean, he closed the Disneyland Park, brought George in for lunch or whatever and I was like, you know, you don't have any heirs. You, you're kind of getting old. I mean, this is the gist of what he was saying and right i didn't enjoy that i I mean it it was almost felt like palpatine was coercing anakin like talking to anakin at this point and it was just kind of strange to me and it seems like because bob you know did a few favors for george with the the indiana jones uh show in the 90s or in the late 80s that george kind of felt you know maybe indebted to him
1: well george always had an affinity for disneyland and disney and uh you know at one time there was an idea that well there could be a Lucasland kind of thing we used to joke about it but george knew that the company that was best suited to do the rides and all those things like i worked on star tours that that famous it's a you know, great ride ride yeah it was yeah, a, it's awesome well written uh, you know cool idea yeah um, but he knew that those that was the group to do it and that was the place to do it cuz the infrastructure that disney had built up over decades and so i think that's why he why he went with them he always admired their ability yeah. but um, you, when you wake up one day and now you've gone from master of the universe to they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to listen to you and they don't have to uh you know that's hard for anybody but that happens to a lot of artists and thank god he walked away uh you know uh, more than solvent he's building a fabulous museum in los angeles that looks like a spaceship yeah i I wrote a little article about it and had some pictures of it Uh, it's on my facebook page if you get to it and uh where it's actually it's on my uh, inside star wars uh, Facebook page. Do you
2: uh, want to shout that out for everyone watching where okay. they can
1: find it? So, If you want to go to uh, Facebook slash inside the Star Wars Empire, you will see a Facebook page and it has uh, things that I post occasionally. The latest thing that I posted was uh, photos of the museum. It gives the architect's name and uh, it, uh, shows of uh, various uh, first first the concept drawing of it which George and his wife just fell in love with but then it shows all of the uh, where the construction is right now the, the photos and you know there's a section there it's an aerial that was shot from a web or a drone. And, and it looks like the ship of, of, of uh, 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 an aircraft carrier is what it looks like right now, which yeah. is so appropriate for a Star Wars museum to look yeah. like this giant hospital ship or something floating in uh, Los Angeles. It's four stories high. It's 270,000 square feet. And one of the bonuses for George was, and he got very excited, there's a lot of schools near it so we want school kids to be introduced to narrative art, which means comic books. It means uh, illustrations. I mean, Norman Rockwell, master artist, you know, the the art world has abandoned him. But you look at some of those (laughs) and see what he did. I mean pretty hard to deny it when it's right in front of you and you're a little kid and you're wandering around, you're seeing all this stuff, and maybe you're going to see some you know, Star Wars spaceships and you're going to see drawings, original drawings, and then you're going to, you know, it's going to blend into all kinds of ways of storytelling through narrative art and illustration. You know, you you
0: mentioned um, something that just breaks my heart every time I um, so I have to just follow up on it very quickly. That you know, George gave them these sequel screenplays and they discarded them. Do you have any insight into what the sequel story be about, or 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 what some of George's visions were for the movies past? Um, you know, for seven, eight, nine. I,
1: I, I don't. I I would guess that they're somewhat akin to the prequels. One thing I can say which I put this in my book and I said, you heard it here first, folks. Jervis was in the screening room one day and he mentioned he was going to do a comedy version of Star Wars. You know, this was just something he just happened to mention that he thought that would be a cool thing to do someday. And, you know, we all remember back when there was a thing called Hardware Wars I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was a it was a a, a kid made a film, a local filmmaker, uh, using pots and pans and stuff, and you know, and irons, uh, you know, ironing board irons, flying through a simulated space, and it was you know it was just kind of a, a funny little takeoff, and I don't know if I know that George uh, laughed at that and thought it was kind of funny. And uh, so where this idea came from or why it disappeared, uh, I have no idea. Maybe it was just that day. Gotcha.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I, you know, my greatest sort of unfulfilled fantasy is to know what his actual story was for 789. I mean, there's rumors. Theory just did a video on it recently. But there was an actual script, you know, there was an actual script written. I
1: think it was
0: great, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Michael Arndt, who's a brilliant writer, um, doesn't want to talk about it. You know, he just, um, you know, doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, And, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking that that story – in the Ark of the Covenant, you know, like if they open up the Ark, like people start melting or something, like, you know, it's like, you know, I, I don't know, it just, it just breaks my heart,
1: you know. Well, have you yeah. ever seen the original screenplay for Star Wars? I mean, you have to 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 see the 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 original thing, you know, scratched out by George. You have to go to the UCLA uh, film library, and and find someone who can lead you to the script. My, my wife for a while was doing a script writing, and she read it. And, you know, the thing is way, way too long for one movie. I mean, it is, it is, uh, you know, a screenplay usually is like 120 pages, and this is, I don't remember, I think over 300 pages. Yeah, so we- That sort of had to be corralled down but t- to me it was no surprise that when the roof blew off and this thing became the biggest thing since copper pipe the movie <laughs> uh, that that uh, he said well you know what i've got some other ideas here and uh, so when they shot uh, empire um which i think is the best of of the films i mean given that star wars is is great but just to my taste uh i I really liked uh empire and uh so when they're shooting a movie whether it's jedi or uh, any of the star wars they have cover names because you can't you know people come by and they always ask well what what movie is it what are you going to say star wars you can't say that (laughs) You, you know uh so, for uh, Empire, it was Blue Harvest. Everybody got t-shirts that said Blue Harvest, and there were little signs on the trucks that said Blue Harvest. The one I can't remember is what the one was for Jedi. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to look into that and see if it's Blue
2: Harvest, is, is, that's what they called uh, the Family Guy spoof. Uh, the Family Guy Star Wars comedy. Yeah. Oh, really? George apparently was a fan of, yeah. Well.
1: It's like um, there are certain things in in movie uh, dumb where if a screenwriter, for instance, wants his name taken off the movie or a director, uh, there there are certain sort of classic names uh, that they were just industry standards, so everybody would know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not who wrote. It, that's not who directed it. Right. I, I can't remember off the top of my head now. but
2: uh, when, it, when it came down to your editing process, what were the main things that you looked for? What were the main things that George looked for? Because I know he was not just a director or writer, but he also enjoyed being in the editing room or, or, or editing oh yeah. movies.
1: Like like I said before, he's one of the few directors who could actually sit down and shoot and edit his own movie. Uh, I think also... Uh, Marsha Lucas has not been given her fair due for what she, I mean, here's a woman that she cut Taxi Driver. She, her role as an editor and, and she is the one that looked at Raiders when uh, Stephen screened it for his friends, George and, you know, his fellow directors. And she said, Stephen, there's no uh, dramatic, conclusion to the story because we never see what happened to the to the girl and all of a sudden Stephen realized yeah she's right and went out and shot the ending which they shot on the steps to the san francisco um uh city hall um to have someone who can not only say that there is a problem with your movie but then tell you how to fix it. Mm. That's gold. And Marcia could do that. I remember talking to one of the assistant editors, and uh, he, he said she was working on the scene, and there was a like a, a, a fallen redwood, and there was an Ewok, and there was uh, uh, Leah, I guess. And it was scraps. There was nothing there. When she got through with it, tears we're going to be in some viewers' eyes, right, to, right, right. To through with that scene, and uh, so we were all very sad when she uh, left the, you know, the the marriage le- left left the the their uh, combined uh, genius in making movies. So I, I just want to always give a little shout out to her.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Marsha Lucas, Academy Award
1: winner and uh, legend, legendary filmmaker. She came in on Jedi. I think she put in two weeks on it and, you know, just went through it and fixed stuff up. <laughs> I don't know exactly what she did, but uh, <laughs> right. it was better when she got done with it. Yeah, Imagine. that's awesome. I well, um,
0: I want to be conscious. Uh, go ahead, Theory.
2: Yeah, no, I was gonna say a thing. I want to be respectful of your of your time. And um yeah. you know, we love talking to you, but uh, you know, we've you been know going we're, for we're one on hour. Constraint. Yeah, we've been going over your time now.
0: Yeah, and like look, I just want to remind everybody um about the book. You wanna bring the book back up? Absolutely. Inside the Star Wars Empire, a memoir by Berlin. Um, you know, I, I think we probably of all the cool stories that you could probably find in here so go out there and uh support this book
2: yeah the link is in the description you guys can find it on amazon in every format and
1: as there it is uh, look at that as i, I, Bill said, you. You can walk I wanted story. to do that <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah there it is and there yeah. it is i i fought like hell to get that cover and there there it is it it's full of the same kind of stories that i've been saying today uh, and on a lot of different movies it's a memoir of a guy who worked in the movie business for 30 plus years and you worked Amen. at ILM for
2: 20 something years
1: 20 years for ILM I ran the uh, department for almost a decade and uh, you That's know awesome. I had a I had a lot of um, uh, experiences and, and things and I, I didn't like um when we would leave dailies, editorial had a bulletin board outside in the hallway. And George and everybody would gather, see what was on. We call it the free speech board. And people would just put stuff. Oh, hi. Up, First
0: of all, that's awesome. Up.
1: So I remember one day somebody put up something that uh, was a picture of what Muhammad Ali might look like when he was in his 70s and of course at that time he was like 35 or something and then another article was there that speculated that in the future a house could cost as much as two hundred thousand dollars and we thought that was so crazy how could anybody afford a house that cost two hundred thousand dollars well look at where we are now I wish it cost $200,000. <laughs>
0: right. Look, abs- look fr- first of all, I-, I I can't say how relevant and how important it is and what a great culture it seemed that ILM was where you have a board called the Free Speech Board where people
1: can feel yeah, confident. To exp- yeah. I'm, and and I'm George can come by and look at it. Yeah. Know? And because he's well, about it. Uh, so- that's the
0: that's the kind of healthy thing that we just don't, you know, people people some people literally see free speech as um as a problem, you know. Um, and it's beautiful, you know, to know that that company that meant that means so much to me, um and and shaped me so much had those kind of you know, that kind of DNA in it. Uh before we go, I do want to point out a few things. Okay. Um we've been you know, it feels like it's my full-time job, but uh, we've been working really hard on starwarstheory.com. So uh, go go check that out, starwarstheory.com. There's been a, a bunch of new updates and even some more new updates are coming tomorrow. So if you're already a member of starwarstheory.com, thank you. If you're not, go check it out. Blockchain, bulletin board system uh, that actually rewards um, the creators of the posts financially, right? We're trying to we're trying to create blockchain-based technologies that actually benefit the audience, uh, Bill. So something I'm very, very excited about. Uh, if you want to go check it out, Star Wars on uh, there. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it's very active. And uh, also, we're clipping out um, these interviews and we'll clip out Bill's as well. We're just starting to clip out uh, Paul Hirsch's. Uh, if you go to youtube.com. Uh, forward slash revog. I don't know if you can bring that up. Really quick theory, um, but um, okay, we, it's all good. So after we do the interview, we do little clip outs, you know, and like yeah, grab yeah. the little tidbits, you know, so we can uh, socialize those. Like, um,
1: like promos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just, kind
0: of, just yeah, yeah okay. just you know, just the little hot topics, you know. Um, but anyway. It, you know, it's all good if you can't bring it up, but you know, go go uh, check that out. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you see there we have uh, yeah, clips coming clips up yeah. from Alan Dean Foster and Paul Hirsch. So go check that out. The and, highlights. Uh, yeah. The highlights, baby. And uh, we do have another show, another rule of two with another legendary Star Wars guest coming up um next week we're not going to say who it is yet or give the time because these things are very fluid um but we will make that announcement soon but bill i want to be able to chat with you again i don't feel like we touched on everything and there seems like there's so much wisdom that you can impart to us um and I'm we can very find grateful. a lot of
2: that in his book so make sure you check yeah. it out it's linked below and you can also walk into any bookstore and you can find it there too so um, Bill, thank you so much for your time. You made a lot of my favorite movies. You worked on a lot of my favorite movies, and I, my first job that I ever wanted was to work at ILM and to uh, make lightsabers when I was six years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do you have a lightsaber
0: from from ILM? Do you have great. anything near you that you can just flash us and give He's us? He's got the that
1: 3 video I see if, over there. If you look at the photos, I I pulled stuff down off the wall and out of garbage cans that I didn't want to see. Uh, go away and so I've got some there if you get a hold of my book There's some photos in there of stuff that I salvaged and uh, that's uh, You know my effort to make this period uh, A little bit better In history, the book, no one that ever worked for ILM or Lucasfilm has ever written a book. Now, I know Paul Hirsch wrote a wonderful book, but he wasn't an employee. Mm -hmm. I'm the only employee who's ever done it. I don't know if they're afraid of the lawyers or what. (laughs) Uh, And I think it's going to be some time. The books are all by journalists who've come in, spent a couple of weeks, interviewed people. Yeah. yeah. Wrote a book and they're gone. Uh, I was there. I saw it. I'm an original source. I wrote it down. I'm sure there's mistakes in there or people may not like my opinion about this, that, or the other thing. But uh, it is there for history.
2: Welcome to 2021 if people don't like your opinion.
0: One last question for you, Bill. If you had to give advice to young folks out there who want to take a path in the filmmaking world, in the creative world, after all this wonderful experience that you've gained in your career, what would your advice for young people be that want to pursue this as a career?
1: Get yourself an internship. We had hundreds of interns at Lucasfilm, at ILM, very bright uh, students, and the thing about them is we became sort of old war horses and their enthusiasm uh, just was infectious for us so they learned some like real world things and we got this boost Uh, you know when you've heard the term uh, many bothans died to bring you this message or whatever it is. <laughs> 500 times you don't want to hear it anymore and you start making fun of it and we would say you know we would bring a hamburger over to someone and we'd say many both has to bring you this hamburger uh, <laughs> so interns get an internship and i guarantee you if you want to work in hollywood you can work in hollywood you may not like it when you get there but <laughs> you just you know, uh, and people should not say, oh, I have this goal or I have that goal. In my opinion, you should find the lifestyle where you're happy and then go out and figure out a way to make a living to let you live that lifestyle.
0: Yeah. Well, many bothins died bringing you this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so
2: okay you know thank you thank you, you. Thank you very much, much sir and you guys
1: can check out the book once again see everybody